I'm here with Jeremy Hammond. He is an independent journalist, a genuine journalist, not the kind that you see on CNN or the New York Times or that kind of thing. He's also the publisher and editor of Foreign Policy Journal, and I'll have links to all of his sites in the show notes. Um, Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. And Thank you for um, the invitation. I, I just I wanted to mention that um, <clears throat> even before COVID nineteen, we're going to talk about COVID nineteen. But even before COVID nineteen, you had been writing quite a lot about vaccines and about attempts to mandate vaccines. Um, and one of the things that's that's really striking to me is that it looks when you look at the Imperial College report, it looks as if um, the whole plan you know, contained within that report was to put off sort of the spike, the spike that they show that never really materialized um, until there's a vaccine. It wasn't about conquering COVID-19. It wasn't about, you know, we're going to beat this thing and then it'll be gone. It's let's keep putting off the big spike until there's a vaccine. Is that your impression? Yes, that's, that's very precise. That, that was their um, whole end game. Uh, and one of the things is that the media focused on was they presented a, gra a graph in that paper, uh, and there, there are two two halves to the graph. And, and the media focused on the first half of it, which showed that uh, the you know the UK, for example, had already implemented certain measures, uh, social distancing measures. People were still able to go to work. It was just they were more focused on you know kind of isolating cases, quarantining existing cases, this kind of thing. Uh, and, and so the Imperial College projection was that if they implemented a more extreme lockdown and basically quarantined the entire population, that they could prevent hospitals from being overwhelmed in terms of critical care capacity in, in ICU beds and respirators. Uh, and so the media focused on the first half of one of the graphs that they presented in that paper, which showed that, you know, if they implemented this, this extreme lockdown, that they could prevent that surge capacity from being exceeded. What the media didn't show was the second half of that graph that showed once the, the lockdown measures were lifted, that the epidemic wave would return and it would be even more severe than had they just stuck with the original policy in the first place. The media didn't talk about that. They didn't present that. And the authors of that paper, Neil Ferguson and his colleagues, were very explicit um, that the, their, their end game was a vaccine. And, and so they advocated a policy of continually you know, implementing lockdown and then, you know, when, when things kind of, when the transmission was at a low enough rate among the population and the spread was low enough that they could allow people to go back to work for a short time and then, you know, the transmission would increase and then they'd just lock everything down again. And, it, and that was their, their plan was to just, you know, turn the, economy, uh, turn the economy off and then turn it on for a little bit and then shut it down again and it, it just repeatedly doing this until a vaccine is developed which is frankly insane. Uh, and, you know, obviously there's a cost in terms of, uh, you know, not just economic costs to this, but, uh, you know, the media have been portraying it as a, you know, characterizing it as a question of when they do actually raise the issue of, of the economic costs, you know, they characterize it in terms of, you know, lives versus money. But of course, it's not lives versus money. There are the economic consequences uh, will have costs also in health and lives. And so this is something that we need to consider. And right in the Imperial College paper, I mean, they, the authors also explicitly acknowledged that they did not consider the economic consequences of, their, of, the, of the policy that they were advocating. They did not consider it. They did not take that into account. 
uh, which mean, is just extraordinary. <laughs> at least they acknowledge that, but <clears throat> but it is something that I, I find just beyond dishonest in in most of the media. I mean, it really to me, it's it's nothing more than propaganda to pretend to to put it as as lives versus Wall Street, which is kind of how you how you hear right. it. You know, it's like oh, if we're talking about the economy, we're talking about these fat cats. You know losing a little bit of their of their stock value, you know, on Wall Street, whereas the rest right. of us ordinary people are only subject to this, you know, <laughs> scary, scary illness. Um, and the reality is, no, they're losing their jobs, they're losing their livelihoods, some are losing their businesses. Um, you know, those are things that impact people's lives. It, it, it can it absolutely causes death. It causes, I, I actually just got a letter from a guy in response to one of my articles whose um, whose wife passed away recently. And he talks about how, you know, she was just the psychological, she, she had been ill and the psychological impact of being shut up in her home, not being able to go out, not being certain about what was going to happen in the near future. I mean, it was just the psychological impact alone can be devastating for people. So there's, there's, there are all these other costs and yet these guys just, it's, it's, you know, yeah, when you just look at this one isolated thing, it might sound like a good idea to shut down the whole world to fight it. But, you know, of course, the world is not just one isolated thing. Um, yeah, no, it's just, it's, it's infuriating. It's, it's really infuriating. It is. It really is. And it's, in, it's particularly infuriating, infuriating that the media are, are characterizing things the way they are and have been. Uh, in the way they they focus on, and, and they treat that report as though gospel. You know that that report from the Imperial College, which really was very influential. I mean, it's it's credited with reversing the UK's policy, um, which would have enabled uh, people to continue to make a living um, while at the same time flattening the curve. I mean, it was it is possible to flatten the curve and prevent hospital overwhelm. Um, well, without, and we're seeing, yeah, I mean, we're <laughs> well, we're like, seeing that in Sweden. Harm. We're seeing that in places like Sweden and Taiwan, you know, yeah. how, how, how are they going to explain that, you know, in, in some place like Sweden where they didn't, you know, shut down the entire economy, schools kept going, um, they're still going. Yeah. And, you know, their, their excess mortality rates aren't any higher than, than the rest, you know, it's higher than some, lower than some. There's not, there's not this massive spike mm. that the Imperial College people told us was going to happen. Um, yeah. Sweden is a great, um, a great point to, to consider. And the lockdown advocates will say, well, you know, if you look at Sweden, um, sh yeah, sure, they, they acknowledge that the, the anticipated, um, you know, exponentially increasing epidemic did not happen in just in terms of the caseload. Um, and the hospitals were not overwhelmed, as, as the media constantly warned about. Well, if Sweden continues down this path, you know, they're gonna, there's going to be a total disaster. That, they acknowledge that that didn't happen. But what they will say is that, well, if you compare Sweden's um, uh, death, death rate per capita with its neighbors that did lock down, that it's higher. But at the same time, it's less than, than in countries like the UK, France. Right. Uh, Spain, where they, where they did have these, you know, extreme lockdowns. And the other, the other thing to consider is, again, looking back at, you know, the, the Neil Ferguson's graph, the Imperial College graph, well, what's going to happen? I mean, first of all, we can anticipate just from the nature of other coronaviruses, including, you know, the, the common human coronaviruses that cause 10 to 20% of, of 
you know, illness, you know, influenza like illnesses globally um, in any even flu season, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that it's likely going to be seasonal. I mean, there's no reason to think that it's not going to be. So right. why would it just that might be part of the reason why we see just universally that, you know, cases, case numbers are falling as opposed to in, continuing to increase or staying flat. Um, that's one part of the explanation. But, you know, so let's just assume that it's going to, you know, it's going to come back, number one, seasonally in the fall. Um, but also, you know, if, if these lockdowns are, are lifted, well, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to see in countries that did lock down, by doing that, they actually, in, you know, in, uh, prevented the development of the population immunity that would be necessary to prevent that second wave from hitting. Whereas what you're going to see in Sweden, we can anticipate that um, they're not going to be hit so hard. You know, assuming again that yeah. this is a seasonal virus, just like the flu or other coronaviruses, um, and in you know the, the, it it will return. Uh, there'll be another wave, um, but it won't be so severe. It won't be as high a wave, and it, it won't be uh, it won't cause as many deaths and things because because they'll have strong population immunity, and so mm-hmm. their strategy has has allowed that to happen. And they've been explicit about you know that that's not their goal. They don't have a a, a policy of let's get herd immunity. It's just that that's, that's one of the benefits of their strategy. Right. Um, it, whereas in the been, other countries. There have been epidemiologists coming out and saying, hey, you all should be going for herd immunity. I mean, there, there are yeah. experts coming out and saying this is, this is a much more sensible policy. Well, sure, because just in terms of epidemiology, that's how epidemics end. I mean, in, in terms of epidemics of re- respiratory viral illnesses, that's how they end. I mean, we yeah. have epidemics of, of influenza every year. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and it, you know, it, and, and the reason being because it evolves so rapidly that every year we're dealing with a new virus. And, and, mm-hmm. and if you look at the, the current a, a, a definition of a pandemic. Well, we have pandemics every single year with influenza. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, the vaccine. What What do you think about the plans to develop a vaccine for this? I think placing. I think implementing policies that are one hundred percent faith based. You know, placing faith that we're going to have a vaccine that's safe, effective, and can be mass produced and distributed globally is what's the word it's insane <laughs> i don't know i don't know a better word to describe it i mean and that's just, i mean looking at number one i mean you've you've got guys like peter hotez and paul offit who are you know as you know that's are very much are very much um pro vaccine they're very strong advocates of public I mean, vaccine they've been the, they've been the spokespeople the little the poster boys for the pro vaccine they're the i mean they're the guys that everybody calls on to defend <laughs> basically to spew vaccine propaganda in the mm. media so when they have concerns right. <laughs> that's something's right. going on yeah right when you have paul off and peter hotez warning the public that you know we have to be really careful about, about rushing a vaccine to market then you know there's some serious issues uh which we could get into but um, i mean just in, in briefly it's there's something called um oh gosh help me with that uh immune enhancement uh, right. is, is the right. term for it. In other words, and we've seen this in other vaccines, the, the dengue vaccine that, that has been, um, it was in the Philippines promoted in, in their, their, uh, 
their childhood schedule for a while until it was withdrawn, caused more severe illness than it prevented. I mean, uh, so that there's this, these types of side effects. And we, we know from other vaccines that are on the market today, what, you know, the diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine, the DTP vaccine, which is the whole cell vaccine that used to be used in the U.S., um, has been replaced in developed countries with, an ace, with a vaccine that has an acellular pertussis component. Uh, but the DTP vaccine is still widely used around the globe. In fact, it's the most widely used vaccine in the world. It's still and pushed by the WHO. why is that? When they, they recognize that there was a problem in the West, why do they even keep producing? That's something I've never really understood. They're, they're still using this in Africa and, and you know, parts of the third world. Right, despite why? the fact that studies show that, that um, this vaccine actually causes, is associated with an increased rate of childhood mortality. Right. All the best scientific evidence shows that, um, and yet they still are pushing it. And, and actually, I mean, to answer that question, um, I would turn to Peter Goitje, his, who is mm -hmm. one of the co-founders of the Cochrane Collaboration and the head of the, um, yeah. the, the branch of the Cochrane Group in, in Norway, I believe. Um, you know, formerly, formerly was part of the Cochrane collaboration. And there's a, this, a whole right. That's a whole there. story. In yeah, that's a whole yeah. other story. Yeah. Uh, but he did a, a, an expert review specifically about the studies related to the DTP vaccine. And he, and, and he included in that review, the WHO's position and the WHO's review uh, of the science related to that vaccine. And he points out how they have a double standard. So the WHO, the world health organization accepts the findings of observational studies showing that measles vaccine has beneficial nonspecific effects. That's the term for unintended consequences in the medical literature. They're called nonspecific effects. So the WHO accepts the findings of those studies while at the same time rejecting the findings of studies showing an association between the DTP vaccine and increased childhood mortality on the basis that they're observational studies, <laughs> which have inherent methodological, uh, you know, weaknesses. <laughs> but, are, but, but are just fine when you're showing that there's something good about the vaccine. Right. And so he points to this double standard, you know, as yeah. an example. And he also points out the fact that the, that the, um, uh, the, the, the members of the committee and the WHO responsible for this review have direct conflicts of interest, financial conflicts of interest. Um, with the pharmaceutical a a industry, including, you know, financial ties to GSK, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, which is one of the manufacturers of the DTP vaccine. So this is what's going on. And, and we see and we see the WHO, for example, is also um, recently sponsored trial currently ongoing in Africa, experimenting on African children with a, a malaria vaccine. They've implemented it um, under the guise of the routine childhood schedule in three countries there. Um, and, and even though they know from prior data that this vaccine too is associated with an increased risk of death, particularly among girls. Um, so it's pretty frightening and it's pretty scary what's happening and that, and that the WHO, who we're supposed to look up to as this great public health authority, is is involved in this kind of monstrosity, you know, um, and just experimenting with people like, without informed consent. And this isn't anything even controversial. I mean, there were two papers in the British Medical Journal, or the BMJ, formerly British Medical Journal, um, explicitly talking about 
how the this this trial is being done without informed consent and that the parents have not been told that the trial data has indicated that it might increase their child ch children's risk of death um and so it really is it really is phenomenally uh frustrating in 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 discouraging to see this type of thing happening and where at the same time you have you know social media google facebook twitter you know all these things you know, holding up the who is you know if the, unless the information is coming from the who or cdc right. you can't rely on it you can't trust right. it and it's like right. you, let's be serious yeah yeah you can't <laughs> have looked very very closely at what the who says if you if you believe that Right. Um, I'd like to get back to the the, the immune enhancement um, mm. issue because that was actually um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was a, a problem with um, previous attempts to develop SARS SARS related COVID vaccines. And that's right, yeah. Why they haven't? Why there isn't one? Is that? Yeah, among other reasons, that that that's one of the big ones is that they ran into this problem and Peter Hotez. Um, is, is a vaccine developer, and he was he was involved in the in, in the, um, attempting to develop a vaccine for SARS, and then uh, you know of course the, the SARS one went away before they could. <laughs> well, they're going to make sure problem. that doesn't happen again. <laughs> uh, and so he's been saying, you know, if only we, you know, we had been had the money and the and the, you know, when he says that he wants public funding. I mean, that's what he's yeah. he's all about. He's all about because he he specializes actually in developing vaccines for diseases which don't cause a, a huge burden in terms of, of mortality. Uh, they're called neglected tropical diseases is the term for them, um, which are, are serious and they're a serious issue, but they're not types of diseases that uh, the pharmaceutical industry views a, as being um, amenable to, to a vaccine that would be profitable, you know? And so but if you're getting a lot of public funding for it. So his whole know. thing is, you know, well, we're, we're going to get the taxpayers to pay for it then. Mm. Um, and that, that's what he's all about. And so, yeah. you know, he complains that he didn't have enough taxpayer money to continue his research on, on, the, on the SARS vaccine. Um, but uh, <laughs> and, yet, and yet now he's one of the people coming out and saying, you know, hold up, don't don't rush this COVID-19 vaccine to market because they're. I mean, he, he and he should know firsthand right. what some of those issues are. Um, mm. What are some of the other issues? Are there other issues specific to developing a COVID-19 vaccine? Well, uh, another issue is just the, the evolution of the virus. I mean, we, we already have the problem with, the, with the, the flu shot where every year it becomes useless because it's designed every year to, to target, you know, three or four strains of influenza, depending on whether it's a trivalent or quadrivalent vaccine. Um, that that rapidly evolve, and every year it's it's a it's a new variant uh, of, of the strain, and so this creates a problem. I mean, this is one of the reasons that the flu shots are so highly ineffective, um, and, and a lot of times they they miss their target. So they, they always anticipate the WHO and the CDC anticipate what strains they think will be most widely circulated, and a lot of times they're wrong. Uh, in, in the two the two thousand uh, 17, 2018 flu season. Uh, actually it might've been, might've been just last year's flu season. I, I forget. They, they, uh, the, the flu shot was actually at the end of the season when the H3N2 strain came around and was causing so much illness. Uh, the, the flu shot, according to the CDC's own estimates had a negative effectiveness. Right. 
Right. <laughs> in other words, the flu shot puts you at higher risk of that particular strain of the flu uh, than if you had no flu shot at all, according to their according to their own data. <laughs> right. Right. But but go but get it anyway because we recommend. It. Right. And so I mean, there's all kinds of problems. Like, you know, there's problems with just the long term. They don't have, they don't do long term studies. Most of the studies that look at flu, you know, influenza vaccine effectiveness look at a single season, maybe mm-hmm. two, but even that's rare. What they don't do is that they look at looking at the effectiveness of the vaccine if you get it year after year after year. And the few studies that have been done on that show very discouraging results. Right. Uh, in right. the sense that you know, in, in terms of the pro vaccine position, uh, in, in the sense that the more you get that shot, the less effective it is year to year, and the, the more you get it, you're more susceptible. It actually can increase your risk to novel pandemic strains. Right. Um, and, and that's basically just due to the opportunity cost of vaccination, which is that natural infection confers a more robust and cross-protective immunity that not only protects you against that infecting strain of the virus, but other strains as well, and even, it seems, from other viruses. So, yeah. Yeah, well, so and, there are these types of issues are also related to the coronavirus uh, and, and any potential vaccine. Um, you know, the evolution of the virus, the, you know, the effectiveness of and then the you know, vaccines are intended to produce an antibody response, but with with coronavirus in particular, it seems that the antibody response is actually not the thing that we should really be aiming for. In fact, one study showed that that like children, for example, don't have very high antibody titers, even though they're immune. Uh, and so this indicates that immunity to the coronavirus is actually at equally or more dependent on other. Uh, types of immunity. So there's cellular immunity, your innate immunity and all of this. And that's, that's something that I think um, really isn't getting much attention at all. The whole issue that, um, you know, for, for the people who promote vaccines as, as conferring immunity, what they really mean is that they're, they're helping to produce antibodies. They're, they're increasing the antibody count. Um, right. but that's, that's not really what, that's not, a, that doesn't equate to immunity. It's, it's right. neither necessary nor sufficient right. for immunity. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you just nailed it. Antibodies are neither always necessary, uh, neither always sufficient nor even necessary for immunity. And, uh, it is a really great irony right now in the media because, you know, of course the alarmist media who are advocating these lockdown measures, you know, are trying to. Um, argue against lifting the lockdowns on the basis of, well, we don't know that, you know, if infection confers immunity, just because you have antibodies doesn't mean that you have immunity. All, right, all like, of a sudden, oh, you knew that. Okay. Like, you know, yeah. hello, what does the FDA base its licensure on for vaccines? It's not, they don't actually prove effectiveness. It's, it's, they, they use antibody titers as a surrogate measure of immunity i mean there's this cognitive yeah. dissonance is yeah. just extraordinary i don't yeah. even know it, it would be how, hilarious if it wasn't tragic how these things can be taken seriously and of course there's no reason to believe i mean there's it, that's a legitimate point of course but you know we've been making that point for years and right. not getting any attention to it and in and, and this case, I mean, there's just no reason to believe that infection doesn't confer immunity. And we know it does because we, where are all the, you know, like look at the, the, the rate of infection in children yeah. or the rate of, of disease, I should say, in yeah. children. Yeah. They get infected and they don't even develop 
symptoms or they have very mild symptoms. And, and I mean, the, 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 the risk to, to children is negligible. And, and even, I mean, there was a study just done, uh, John Ioannidis uh, out of Stanford University and, and co-authors uh, have published just very recently a study looking at the absolute risk of the virus uh, and talking about, and also looking at the risk to, um, to people who are la- under 65, oh, yeah. who don't have comorbidities, who are healthy, so younger, healthy people. Uh, and, and the risk to this population is also negligible. <laughs> yeah. And it really is, uh, uh, I mean, the risk factors really are, you know, old age, but not old age alone, old age combined with chronic disease. I mean, it's really a, a virus that, that is really dangerous to people who are already sick and dying, essentially. So given that, given that for the, the vast majority of the population, the risk is negligible, why is Bill Gates saying we need to have, you know, a dozen vaccines per person on the planet? You know, why, why this push to vaccinate everybody? That's a good question. Um, you know, obviously, there are financial interests in, involved in that. Um, Gates, the Gates Foundation itself has been very uh, involved in, for example, you know, uh, vaccination campaigns that are associated with the WHO. Um, he's a major contributor to the WHO, as are pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and so there's all these kind of conflicting and intertwined interests um, and, you know, that whole web of, of, of interests and things. But, uh, you know, so just in terms of Bill Gates himself, I, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what's driving him. I think he's, you know, I think he's what I would call just a fervent. Um, uh, he, what I, he's basically a faithful adherent to what I call the vaccine religion, I think. I think he really truly believes that that vaccines are the greatest invention mankind has ever seen. And uh, I know I think he's willfully blinded himself to the problems with vaccines, like the DTP vaccine that he promotes in his campaigns and helps to uh, push out to the world despite the scientific evidence. Um, it, I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not as, I don't believe in certain conspiracy theories that are very popular right now. I mean, I don't think like, you know, the idea that Gates himself was somehow involved in the creation of this virus. I don't believe it was manufactured. I think uh, it it did evolve. I don't think it was genetically engineered in a lab. The evidence is against that, not in favor of that. It's possible that it it did escape from the lab in Wuhan uh, in Hubei province, China, but that's a different, that's a different question. Um, so I don't, I don't subscribe to any of these these theories that are quite popular right now. Um, but, you know, the, the thing, I mean, look at my, my own, I'm in Michigan here. I'm coming to you from lockdown here in Michigan, where our governor has recently um, extended the lockdown and implemented a six-step policy, where the final step, step number six, would be, you know, finally that we can kind of go back to quote-unquote normal and people can get on with their lives. But the requirements for that to happen, she says, in the state of Michigan's policy, is that transmission of the virus is reduced to nearly zero, so that there is nearly zero new cases of the virus, which will depend, they say, on on the development of a vaccine or or a pharmaceutical cure, as they put it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't don't even know what to say to that, but this is like... 
you know, it, this isn't, again, it's not some kind of conspiracy or something. It's just like, this is what bureaucrats and politicians believe right now. Like they, they, they have this faith in vaccine technology that that's, this is what's going to save us. And, you know, and I just think about that and, and well, we don't have near zero cases of influenza every year. And, and according to the CDC, influenza every year causes up to 61,000 deaths we don't shut down the economy for it. And I'm wondering what the criteria is that distinguishes, you know, that from, you know, this idea that we're going to stay under lockdown until cases are near zero with, with coronavirus. Yeah. I mean, I just, there's this, again, it's this cognitive dissonance and this, and this fear based and panic based reasoning, as opposed to, you know, looking at the data and just staying calm and making data driven sensible science-based decisions and of course our governor here governor whitmer it likes to say that you know we're making pol- our policies are backed by hard science and things but that's just a bunch of nonsense i mean there's no science for example to, to support this her you know right now if you go out if you go to the grocery store by government order you're supposed to wear a cloth mask well, where is the science to support that yeah I mean, and I've looked, I've read dozens and dozens and dozens of studies on, on masks and, and the science to support masks. And this is in, you know, and obviously there is a case to be made for masks in certain circumstances and yeah. in, in using certain masks, but cloth masks among the general population. And now I go to the store and all I see is people touching their face. Yeah. And wearing a mask, the same mask, mask for weeks. Right. And it's like, that's how the virus spreads. Well, and the lockdowns generally, I mean, everything that's coming out now, now that there are data scientists actually looking at, you know, comparing the places that had lockdowns to the places that have not had lockdowns there can, you know, unless I've missed something, they are consistently saying there's no benefit that it's not the lockdowns do not help. They don't do what you guys said we needed them to do. There's so, no association. Yeah. And there's evidence that they can do harm. I mean, look at the like school closures, for example. I mean, early on in, in Michigan, they just statewide closed the schools. They didn't leave it up to, to local officials and, in, you know, whether at the county or the, the municipal level to decide whether to close schools or not. The governor just ordered all schools closed. So they took all these kids out of the schools and sent them home. And this was... A be day. With grandparents. This was within a day of the CDC putting out a policy guidance document pointing out that 40% of grandparents in the United States are involved in the child care of their children. Well, who's at greatest risk from SARS-CoV-2? The grandparents. Yeah. And so you've just taken all these kids who are potential you know, asymptomatic carriers of the virus and put them in closer you know, uh, and dose, and this is the other thing that people don't, don't, don't seem to understand is that dose and duration of exposure are a risk factor for severe disease. So what have they just done? I mean, it's, there's no science to support that policy recommendation, you know, where, yes, there is a case to be made you know, of, of school closures at certain times based on certain local circumstances, you know, and, and, and obviously that's based on, you know, other viruses like influenza and things, which is a totally different, you know, like with influenza, for example, children are a major source of transmission in, in the community. Whereas with SARS-CoV-2, they don't, they don't seem to be, I mean, they're, they're pretty much immune to it. 
Um, and so, you know, there's differences like that that also need to be taken into consideration. But just in terms of looking at the existing data and the existing evidence, um, you know, the idea that there's that her decision to just shut down all schools in the state at the same time was was science backed. Well, no, it, it really wasn't. And, you know, that's something we've been we've been saying this for a long time, you know, in, about vaccines generally, that there's this mantra out there, you know, vaccines are safe and effective. Um, it's your anti-science if you criticize that. <laughs> and a lot of us have been saying, well, no, actually, here's science that supports what I'm saying. Here's science that supports that there are problems, <clears throat> you know, that they can be dangerous. Here's, here's the science. And to say, you know, to just have this slogan, vaccines are safe and effective, that's actually flies in the face, that flies in the face of the science. Um, so do you think now, but you know, not everybody was paying attention to that. Do you think now that this is so in our face, you know, in California, they, they went out and arrested a guy on his boogie board or on his surfboard way out in the middle of the ocean. They disrupted a little girl's birthday party. The, the things that they've been doing are so outrageous. And to me, it seems like people who were not sort of clued into this in the past are really getting a taste of the insanity and the the the, the flat out dishonesty of it. The the you know the fact that none of what they're doing makes any sense, and yet they have the power to do it, so they're going to do it anyway. Do you feel like there's sort of an awakening happening? I, I, yeah, to to some extent, not not to the extent there needs to be. And and I, you just reminded me of another example here from my home state of Michigan, where like people would be taking their boats out in the middle of a lake, you know? Right. Got to get them. The DNR is coming and like giving them tickets for violating so, supposed social distancing rules and things. I'm just like, <laughs> what is this insanity? And the fact that so many people among the public, I mean, the general population has just accepted this as though like, this is what we need to be doing right now. And, and like yeah. almost violently supportive of it. Uh, including members of my own family, to be to be frank. Oh wow! Yeah, and, and so it's it's frustrating to me on a personal level as well as a professional level to see to see this happening and to see. Uh, but the, the, I think the reason for that is just the panic and the fear because the, the both government officials and the media have just been so alarmist and sensational about this whole thing, and that in any positive data that comes it's almost like they don't want to see the positive data you know like the the mm -hmm. serological studies that are showing that the infection that the transmission is is so widespread and there's so that the number of infections are so much greater than the numbers of reported cases which makes the infection fatality rate you know on, on, on a par with a seasonal you know severe seasonal flu it's almost like they don't even want to know about that and, and, and they have to like attack that information as though like like we shouldn't <laughs> trust these studies and things and it's like well you know, there's, there's obviously methodological flaws with any, any study. And of course we should take those in, things into consideration, but you know, like this is good news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you were quite willing to trust this model that, right. you know, wasn't even based on actual data. It was no, that, that's, on... that's treated as gospel. Yeah. Yeah. No, it Whereas, is weird. You know, it's... this, again, it's that cognitive dissonance and that yeah. I don't, yeah. it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult to understand. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by how many people are speaking out about it though. I mean, I'm encouraged by yeah. the demonstrations and the people just saying, you know, no, we're going to go back to work. I'm, I'm just hearing a lot more um, voices against the establishment 
than I ever did with vaccines. I mean, just, I'm going to call them normal people because they're not, you know, they're not the ones who spend their whole day studying all this stuff, but you know, just average normal people are saying, no, this is nuts. I'm not going to, I'm not going to walk around in, in yeah. a mask and I'm not going to keep my business closed. I'm not going to, this is crazy. If you're, if you're worried about it, stay home. You know, there are people right. who should stay home. There are people <laughs> exactly. who legitimately should avoid this, yeah. but it's not a hundred percent of the population. And I, I feel right. like, I feel like people are more people than I had expected to are kind of coming to realize this. Um, yeah. And I'm just seeing, I'm seeing a lot more skepticism of government. They call it the government overreach, but of government action here, I'm just seeing a lot more criticism of that. Um, I don't know. Do you, is that, that the, this is California where I kind of expected everybody to roll over and just, you know, go along with it. But are you, is that, are you seeing any of that where you are? To an extent, but it's become, then it becomes politicized. It's like, yeah. well, that's just the Trump supporters out there. Right. Well, that's know, what they, Even yeah. though Trump is like in favor of these lockdown measures too. I don't, I don't even get that whole thing, but it's like, they try to make it be like, well, that's, these are like these right wing. But that's, the, right -wing that's, it's, it's like, extremists. that's the only smear they have. That's, right. that's all they have. There was, you know, right. there, there were demonstrations in Berlin where completely peaceful people were attacked by, by the police. And, um, I shouldn't say attack. I don't, I don't know if there was actual violence, but they were like carrying people off and, you know, disrupting the demonstration, stopping them. Um, and, you know, the way it was portrayed in the press was, you know, demonstrators with ties to right wing organizations. Yeah. yeah. No, they were right, just right. peaceful protesters who are tired of this. Um, They've lost their jobs and they want to get back to work yeah. and make a living. Yeah. As though, they have, as though they have no other legitimate reason to right. protest. They must, they they must have, be right wing being paid off by right-wing organizations or something. I mean, it just, it's ridiculous the way yeah. the media is characterizing these types of things. It's nuts. Um, it, my, my concern is that, um, you know, I, I think it's becoming pretty clear that the, the, a, the model was wrong. Um, B, cause I think they're two separate issues. The, the COVID-19 is not as deadly, certainly not, not to the general population as we had originally been led to believe. Um, my concern is what if a really scary disease does hit? What if we get like Ebola on steroids, Ebola that can like, that's easily transmittable that, um, you know, somehow manages to make its way through the population quickly. Something that really is really scary. Do you think, I, I feel like a lot of the people around me have woken up to the fact that, you know, an authoritarian top-down response causes more pain and suffering and death, I think we'll see in the long run. Um, you know, look at what Cuomo did in, in New York. Um, I think people are waking up to that a little bit at least. Do you see that at all? And do, do you think that if there was a genuinely scary, scary threat that people would be as willing to turn to government to solve it for them as they were before this? Well, unfortunately, I think very large numbers of people, I, probably the majority would still. I mean, just there's just a, such faith in government in that is, is hard to combat. <laughs> you know, it's misguided faith. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree with you that I think there's kind of an awakening. I think people are starting to realize, and I, I, frankly, I see, I see what's happening as an incredible opportunity 
to really communicate to the public and to the masses certain things, you know, again, related to, uh, you know, public vaccine policy, you know, again, like, like the, the fact, you know, like the fact that it's become part of the mainstream discussion that antibodies don't equal immunity, you know, or that uh, there are serious concerns about rushing vaccines to market, uh, you know, these types of, these types of things. Um, you know, I, there's an incredible opportunity to really educate the public about epidemiology and viruses and, and, and diseases. And also, I think, you know, there's, it's also a wake up call, I think, in terms of um, how we approach public health, you know, and that we can't just rely on pharmaceutical solutions. Uh, and, and we have to look at, you know, if we look at the risk factors for severe COVID-19 disease, um, a lot of them, obviously, there are things that are beyond people's individual control, but a lot of them are, are consequences of individual choices. I mean, if you're a heavy smoker, <laughs> for example, you know, I mean, you have to accept the consequences yeah. of your own actions. Or if you just eat a, a terrible diet for your whole life and you can't, ex and, you, and you develop chronic disease as a result. Uh, I just read a, 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 yesterday, I was spending a bunch of time reading studies uh, related directly to nutrition. Uh, and, and the necessity of, of vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin E, zinc, selenium, all, all these nu nutritions, uh, nutritional um, things that we get from our, our diet or in the case of vitamin D from the sunshine and how critically important they are for the proper functioning of our immune system. And, <laughs> and you know, why isn't there more of a focus on that? And what, what really struck me about these studies that I was reading is the lack of science. And these scientists keep talking about, you know, yeah, we know these things, we know that they play these critical roles, but it's really, you know, like, for example, like what dose and, you know, duration and things should people be taking? And if we're going to recommend supplementation, you know, what should we tell people for guidance? And they can't because they haven't done the studies to be able to determine and make those types of recommendations on a science-based basis. Hmm. And that, that's really striking to me because, it, it, it you know, I, I think also the example of measles. You know, where instead of focusing research, there's really an opportunity cost. And this has to do with institutional biases and, and the negative influence of public policy on the direction of science. You know, where, what, where is all the science focusing on the risk factors? Because, you know, even before the vaccine, the, 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 the risk of dying from measles in the U.S. was quite low. And, and the infection fatality rate is estimated at 1 in 10,000. They were about 450 deaths on average per year from measles in the U.S. before the vaccine. Tragic each and every one, but, you know, we need to put that into some perspective. Yeah. Uh, and then generally, it was a benign illness, and most people's children, most children had an immune system that handled that virus just fine. So there were certain children that, that did develop severe disease, that did have complications, and, then, and that did die. So what was different about those children? Where's all the scientific research examining that question and trying to figure out what were the specific risk factors? And we know some of them, but it's still kind of a big unknown in science. Uh, so where's all the research focusing on those things? And it's like they have all this you know, intense research on developing vaccines. I'm reading articles, you know, in, in the study, you know, like um, looking at questions of immunity, like the pre-publication pre studies right now that haven't been peer-reviewed yet, but they're being published just to kind of get the information out there. And it's, it strikes me that they rationalize their research into things like, you know, the uh, antibody response to, to SARS-CoV-2 infection 
and they rationalized their research on the basis that, well, this, this research can help in the development of a vaccine. It's like as, as though if we, if we don't develop a vaccine, as though this research didn't have a, a purpose. <laughs> and so we wouldn't need to know this stuff if it wasn't for the intent to develop a vaccine. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think, you know, there needs to be more focus on, you know, the fact that we are, we were, if you believe in God, we, we were created, or if you believe in evolution, that we were evolved with an, a functioning immune system. If we give it what it needs to function properly, we can be healthy. And, you know, as opposed to just relying on like pharmaceutical solutions for everything. Sorry, my mic was off. That's not going to make billions of dollars for anybody though. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. part of the problem. Yeah. But that's, I think it is sort of, it's an opportunity to bring that to light that that's a question that doesn't get asked. That's something that yeah. there's, there's not research money being, being poured into that. Um, we've gone past half an hour. <laughs> um, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to add? Any, anything else that you think is important um, to, to get out? There? Oh, there's so much. We, yeah. could discuss. we could go on for hours and hours. Uh, but, well, we um, can, okay. We could do, we should do this again. Then. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, there, there is, there is quite a lot. But no, I would just, I would just stress um, the importance of staying calm, not panicking, uh, looking at the data uh, and looking at, you know, the risk factors. And, and I think this is the point that, that I would like to stress is that government bureaucrats, whether it's state capitals or Washington, D.C., cannot do, they do not know better than individual households what's in the best interest of the individual household. Only the members of the household, only each individual in that household uh, as a family can, can best make judgments about what's in their best interests. Everyone is living in different circumstances and what might be what, what might apply for one household isn't necessarily applicable to another household. Just, just the same as, you know, what might, what might be the true for hospitalization rates in, in New York isn't true for, you know, uh, here in northern Michigan, for example. Yeah. Um, and so the government and the media should what they should be doing is educating the people calmly and rationally and objectively to be able to make their own informed decisions and exercise their liberty uh, in a socially responsible manner. But that's not happening. And that's the problem. And so, uh, you know, I appreciate this opportunity to kind of <laughs> try to steer people more toward that, that kind of um, data-driven, uh, rational, not panic-based um, type of approach. And yeah. so that, 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 I think, is the big thing that I would want to emphasize. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, definitely. We have to do this again. Um, and stay safe out there. Yeah, you too. Thanks okay, for this thank opportunity. You. Thanks.